don't forget, you're going to die. Welcome to the We Croak podcast, where we talk about all the things we don't talk about enough, starting with death, but not ending there. This week, it's all about death. Uh, we have Jenny Deer, who is the author of What Does It Feel Like to Die? Inspiring New Insights into the Experience of Dying, which is a book that is just chock full of research, um, insights and knowledge from the palliative care community and, and hospice volunteer world that answers each question one by one of what it's like right after the fatal diagnosis, death trajectories and uh, pain, all the questions you might have. So we have a really wonderful conversation about all of that um, and what it means for living, you know, accepting our end and having uh, more sane and better expectations for when we or someone we love is nearing the end. Jenny Deere is a former journalist and associate professor of English, longtime hospice volunteer. She's written a really wonderful book about the topic. So without further ado, here is Jenny Deere. Thank you so much, Jenny Deere, for joining us and for writing this book, What Does It Feel Like to Die? Thank you. And for our listeners, What Does It Feel Like to Die is exactly like it sounds. It really um, explains the dying process to you know people and honestly family members who are on their way. And it opens with a really touching family story of, of how the idea for this book began. Do you, do you mind just sharing that? Right. I um, My mom died almost 15 years ago and she had had breast cancer. We'd known serious cancer for six years and we'd known for four years that her cancer was terminal. But I remember when she finally went on hospice, which was just for her last few weeks of life, and a hospice nurse sitting down with the two of us and going over, here's how hospice works, here's a, some of what you can expect. And then the nurse sort of stopping and saying, do you wanna know what it feels like as your body begins to shut down? And my mom and I were so relieved by that question because in all that time with all those clinics and practitioners she'd seen, no one had talked to her as far as I know about the physical process of dying. So it was that question and that moment that eventually led me to begin researching this book. Yeah, it was it was a very moving opening moment for the book. And overall, you know, this book has so much research about, you know, the studies and statistics about how people want to die, but you always come back to about doing it yourself with with your mother. And one thing that struck me was, you know, it was almost like reading about I know this is going to sound weird, like planning a wedding or some sort of big family <laughs> event that you did together. That was a lot of work <laughs> and you were trying to make it as nice as possible. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about, you know, what it's like to help someone in the, that last sort of phase of life. <laughs> you made me laugh. I've never heard that comparison. I am dying and getting married. But I but I think there's something to what you say because it's it's such a big moment in our lives. And I think we had not prepared in many ways for my mother dying, but because we'd known for so long that she had terminal cancer, we were able to have lots of 
of wonderful last experiences. And, and every Christmas, those last few years, we thought might be our last Christmas with her or, or all our special occasions. So it, there was a sense of, of ceremony. And I think part of what, what surprised me and maybe some of my other family members was a, a sense of what I keep coming back to sort of sacredness around her dying where we we all felt so close to each other and so close to her. And my my father is a, a very accomplished piano player, and he would play all her favorite songs on the piano, and we would read poetry aloud to her and, and to each other, and we'd, we'd sing. We had all these moments of, of closeness, and we did... We kept a vigil her last couple of weeks, so someone was with her at all times. I don't know how important that was to her as she drifted into unconsciousness, but it was really important to us. Yeah, one, one of the things that really came through in the book for <laughs> me was that, like you said, that sense of ceremony, but also planning and sort of your discovery of all the resources and knowledge that you know, the community of professional caregivers have about end of life. And uh, it really comes through in the book. And you start it with uh, something I thought that was really interesting called the existential slap, which is really, I guess, what it's called in the palliative care literature, where someone receives their fatal diagnosis and they have their experience of processing that. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, the very beginning of, of dying. Yeah, that that phrase was coined by nurse researcher Nessa Coyle. And, and it turns out that there's been quite a bit of research, or at least some research, about what it feels like for someone to receive a terminal diagnosis, and how do people respond, and how do they deal with that. And for me, part of what's comforting is that you're not the only one watching a family member or a close friend go through that or, or receiving that yourself. But it can be deeply, deeply distressing. And one researcher I interviewed said, you know, of course, intellectually, we all know we're going to die. But, but most of us don't really accept that on a gut level until we have some deep, disturbing experience such as a terminal diagnosis. And for a lot of people that happens in the doctor's office or in the next couple of days after receiving the diagnosis. And it, it's an existential crisis because who you are in the world and the way that you relate to other people and how you think of yourself is changed in that one instant because there's suddenly this cap on your life that's, that's really visible and that's difficult to avoid. And so people can get really depressed. It, um, you can enter a state of despair. It can be a very acute stage, but, but people come out of it. And I find that to be the other really comforting thing about the research. And in fact, two researchers back in the 70s, Avery Weissman and Wharton, did a study where they said people come out of it in about two to three months. They seem to, to sort of recover from this existential crisis. 
And for a lot of people, you come out of it with a deeper appreciation of the life that you have left and of your connections with other people. So your remaining days, weeks, months, years can be more richly rewarding than they were before. Yeah. One of the really nice things about your book and your research is I think most of us living in the United States you know, expect a pretty high level of medical care for our bodies up till the end. You know, we, we know that doctors are very professional and know what they're doing. But I think a lot of people expect that, you know, their, their personal crises, despairs, depressions are something that they're going to have to do alone. When in fact, what your book makes clear through careful study of the research is people have really paid attention, especially at end of life. And, you know, reading this book and, you know, just knowing the the, the research is that, you know, if, if your family member has, or you have an existential slap moment from a fatal diagnosis, you know, you can look at it and go like, okay, this will probably last about a month or two. I better be really there for them. Right. I, I think it's, it's also really interesting to know the amount of research that's starting to happen about how people can cope better with the diagnosis, that, that psychiatrists are looking at ways that people who are dying or who have advanced stage diseases sort of recover better from that or, or deal better with, with their lives because it is really difficult. And I, I don't want to soft pedal that there's, there's a lot that's hard with knowing that death is imminent, but, but there are ways that people seem to cope better than others. Uh, for example, <laughs> for example, there um, it, it seems like there's there's sort of several threads in the research. So one of them is that you need to face your grief. That before you say, okay, I gotta I gotta just put the best light on this and and deal and and become a better person, you really have to accept. That, that, that you have to grieve, that you're losing everyone and everything that you've cared about. And then for, for a lot of the strategies that people have been working with, people are asked to reflect on their, their past lives and think about where they've found meaning in the past and, and what is most important to pass on to the people who are left around them. And then... They're asked to think about, you know, what what do you want to tell the people that are important to you? Do you need to ask them to forgive you? Do you need to give them your forgiveness? Do you want to say thank you and I love you? Which are the questions that Ira Bayek, who's done a lot of work with dying people, says we all need to to say to each other. And um and that kind of conversation, realizing that reflecting and then having that kind of conversation can give us, I think gives people a sense of meaning for our remaining time, because that's part of what we lose, right? Is you go, if, if I only have a few weeks or months left, then what's the point of any of it? And yet people are able to find such a sense of deeper meaning that 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 time can be some of the most precious in their lives. Yeah. And, you know, what strikes me about this is I think people 
you know, get it that we all want deep intimacy. We want to know our values, to spend quality time with the people we care about. But there can be this resistance or this wall to breaking through and actually having those kinds of conversations about values, meaning, despair. How does that happen for, you know, a dying person and their families? Do they need a professional to come in and, and work with them? Is there like a handy guide to get started or, or your advice? <laughs> I wish I wish we all had a, a professional co to come in and work with us, but the, that's not the case, right? We're, counselor isn't usually part of, of what we assign to a dying person. But there are, um, I think of Virginia Lee at McGill University in Canada has, and she was working on an app for people to help them begin that reflective process. I think of Ira Bayek's book called Dying Well, where he says, here's those questions that can be really helpful to people. And I also think that the process itself just cracks you wide open for, for so many of us. And um, I went to a, a Buddhist retreat a month or so ago called Death and Love. And someone asked the leader of the retreat, well, what's, what's the parallel here? What's the connection? And she talked about the way that, that dying really opens people up and gets through those defenses in a way, in a way we don't we don't usually encounter in our normal lives, and so so your defenses often do drop then. Yeah, I mean I've seen it happen many times before that thinking about death does crack people open and make them more open to talking about their values, and at the same time you you share in your book this story of you know, just some of the ostracism and isolation that can happen around someone with a, a fatal diagnosis. You shared one particularly poignant and I think very of the moment story of, you know, a man who was dying and it was his last couple of days and his brother was there, but he spent his whole time on his cell phone, on his mobile phone. Couldn't even look at his brother because the dying thing made him so uncomfortable. Um, so he avoided it. Um, with the handy thing, the phone. And I'm wondering, like, how come it goes one way for some people and one way for the others? Or do you have any thoughts about that? The, you know, that's such a good question. And I don't, I don't think I have an answer because I've seen, I've seen both extremes. I think of a, another, another example in the book is a, a woman that I interviewed who'd lost her husband and he had been in such deep denial and and she had been grief stricken by knowing that he had a terminal disease but also eager to delve with him into the the potential for deepening their relationship and his last weeks and months and 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 coming to that sense of closeness and deeper meaning and and so there they were married to each other at at opposite extremes of acceptance of death and he was at the point where a hospice nurse came in a, a week or two before he died and said you know you, you're dying now and the wife overheard it and said, you you hear her, right? And he said, yeah, I do, I, I get it. And then the hospice nurse left and the wife came into his room and said, 
So, so you really do get it that, that you're dying now. That's what the hospice nurse said. And he said, oh, that's just her opinion. And he, mm-hmm. he could not bring himself to accept the fact of, of his imminent death. And I, I think, of course, you know, there, there are things that we can do at, at any point in life, like, like your app for reminding people that we're mortal, that we can, we can help ourselves early on to accept it. And I think that can be powerful because here was this wonderful chance for a deep connection that this man missed. And he had this lovely openness in his, his partner that he didn't, he didn't get to take advantage of. Yeah. I, I think your book and the research, this idea of it being an opportunity for great intimacy and growth, almost in some ways, you know, can be a highlight in terms of meaning, maybe not joy and pleasure and all those other things, but meaningfulness, <laughs> um, which is important, you know, but people don't have to take it. I think you're right. I think you're right. And, and our culture makes it difficult. And I try to to remind myself and others that it that isn't all our fault. We live in this this wonderful time when infant mortality is much lower than it was historically, where we have these long lifespans, where we can expect to have adult relationships, not just with our parents, but often with our grandparents. And so and so death and dying for most of us are not a routine organic part of our lives. And that's that's because of these wonderful changes in society, right? But the the dark underlining to that is that it's difficult to have a really healthy organic relationship with death and dying. And they're and they're gonna happen. So so the the better that we can accept and be prepared for that, the 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 better our lives will be. Yeah, and being prepared for dying, I mean, it's it's mm-hmm. a lot. There's a lot of phases to it. You know, it's not just that last day on the deathbed moment. It can be a couple of years between a fatal diagnosis and death, which is a different kind of life. And you have a beautiful section that I hadn't actually read in the literature before about the land of living and dying is what you call it, which is sort of after fatal diagnosis, but when you know there might be months or years or people don't know how soon or when it's going to take its final turn for the worse and you know um sort of the goals and um way to you know keep living during that time in a meaningful way and i was wondering if you could just talk about why you decided to like pull out that phase of of end of life and, and your thoughts about it I think it's it's such an interesting part because we we tend to think either you're lying on your deathbed drawing your last breath or or you're living fully. And of course that's that's not true and perhaps it's even much less true than it's than it's ever been because people can receive a terminal diagnosis, they know they have a disease for which there's no cure. And yet the treatments will allow them to live for for years. And once you're in that space, 
when researchers have gone and interviewed people, they've said, you know, I've, I've got different relationships with people than I ever, than I ever did before. One woman said at first with her husband, we would be so close and not argue about anything because who cares about the socks on the floor if, if one of you is dying. But then all the tensions that come in from dealing with medical decisions or, or somebody having to change their role of who's taking care of the house or the kids or, or bringing in the money to support you can be really difficult, especially over a long period of time. And then people have said, you know, the, the friends that I thought would really be there for me, they've sort of disappeared. And I think that happens all too often where people are either afraid of death. Ooh, I might, I might get some on me, right? If I get, if I get too close <laughs> to somebody who has a terminal disease or they don't, they just don't even know what they should do. They don't know what their role is with a person. And then there are other people who are really comfortable with death and dying, and they either seem to come by it naturally, or they've had enough experience, and they're suddenly there in a new way for the person. And they say, oh, yeah, these friends that that I wasn't that close to before have become, they, that person's my rock now. They'll call up and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you to your doctor's appointment. When is it? I'm, I'm going to be there. And I think just understanding that those re, those changes in relationships are, are probably going to happen can be really helpful. And then one of the things that people talk about a lot is the, the way that the, the medical establishment or decisions about medicine become so central to your life. And one doctor that I interviewed said he'd heard it called, you know, the train, where you just, the train keeps going no matter what. And so you don't have the chance to stop once you're on it and say, wait, is this particular treatment going to extend my, my life as a, a life with, with good quality? Or is this just something that might not even help me live longer? It's just one more thing to do. And, and I think that that can feel like this, this big um, conspiracy of different forces where the medical establishment ask lots of questions about, are we, are we really helping people or are we, are we encouraging them to do treatments that aren't going to be that helpful to them? So they, they've, begun asking those questions of themselves. And then patients are a little more willing to ask those questions. And then family members sometimes are, are more willing to ask those questions. And yet, if at any point somebody's not, then everybody else sort of shuts up about it, right? Like a doctor's not going to say, wait, have you really considered whether you want to do this chemotherapy treatment that that might prolong your life a little bit, but will prolong your misery and make it harder for you to say your goodbyes and enjoy your last months of life. So it, it, it's become very complicated for, for people. Yeah, one of the things that really comes out in your book, and it comes right out of the research, is that dying is a lot of work. 
<laughs> and I don't think people, I, I you know, I kind of knew that, but I think there's this idea that this is just a time of letting go, like lying in bed, and it is a little <laughs> bit. But there's also a lot of big decisions to make in terms of healthcare. Um, a lot of things you might want to still do, like you tell this very touching story of a man sort of training in his walker so that he would be able to take a kind of a last stroll around the park with his uh, adult child. And, um, you know, they're just uh, the dying people are managing a lot, doing a lot. I don't know, do you think that's a cultural thing about today? Has, has dying always been a lot of work? I think, of course, yes and no, because... Because your body, as it's breaking down, is still working hard. So there, in that sense, we're we're working hard. I think of someone that I I sat with a few weeks ago, and it was her last hour of life, and watching her face to see if there was anything that she needed that I might give to her, that I might should I be reading to her, should I just be quiet with her, and. Her brow was deeply furrowed in this kind of concentration where she was working hard as she was was letting go or as her as her body was shutting down. But then I think of that other sense of the hard work of all the decisions that you have to make, all the the subtleties in those decisions. One researcher that I interviewed said, patients become, quickly conscious of the implications of some of their decisions or what they say. So if a nurse or doctor asks them if they're in pain, they they may consciously deceive the medical professional because they realize that they won't receive the next chemo treatment until they're out of pain. And so, so they're also making these sophisticated decisions about how much information do I give out because it might result in, in shortening my life. And I said something to the researcher about, oh, so the patients think this. And she said, no, 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 it's true. They're, what they say may well decide whether they get the next treatment that might extend their life whether or not that's a that's a, a good thing or a bad thing we didn't go into but there but there's there's so much work in looking at at what what to tell the people around you even right and then patients often will be trying to protect their family members so if your aunt sarah isn't dealing well with knowing that you're dying maybe you can't talk to her about that or, you, or you're trying to protect your kids or your spouse from that knowledge. And maybe other people really need to talk with you about what's going to happen after you're gone. And then you have all the decisions about how is your family going to make it without you there if you're the breadwinner or the, the caretaker of kids or the house. And what about getting your will in order? And, and, and it goes on and on and on. And and I agree with you. I, I hadn't thought that much about the kind of work involved. And I think in my own case with my mother, that that she hid that from us, that <laughs> her last day on her feet up and about, she went into her office and went through her computer and 
files and put them all in order and threw out the things that were irrelevant and spent about four or five hours. And then after that, she was in bed for her remaining couple of weeks. Yeah, it's, it's such an interesting, especially the social dimension of the work of you know dying, but trying to ease the feelings of family members is such a touching and common, it seems, part of the work. Hey everyone, thought we'd take a little break from this awesome episode. Thank you as always, Hansa, for being such a great host. And Hans and I, we wanted to take a minute to talk about the biggest change that's ever happened in the history of We Croak. We Croak is now free. It's pretty marvelous, don't you think, Hansa? Yeah, so if you've been trying to get friends to sign up, they can now do it without spending 99 cents. Uh, and they'll get uh, a certain limited number of quotes. And uh, if they love it, they can always trade up to another thing we're doing, which is Leap, which is the largest database of over a thousand hand-selected WeCroak quotes, as well as a weekly challenge to take these insights about our temporary nature into action. We're really excited about it. We're getting good feedback and I hope you join us. So yeah, Leap is a monthly subscription currently available on the iPhone and iPad. And if you are on Android, do let us know if Leap is something that you would be interested in trying. We also wanna take this time to thank those who have paid the full 99 cents for WeCroak, whether it was two years ago or two weeks ago. You will always have access to the same amazing 600 quotes that the database has grown up to over the years. So don't worry, we're going to be taking care of you. Yeah, so uh, that's on the app, of course. Uh, if the app isn't your style, we do have some people who just like listening to the podcast uh, and you want to support us, we do still have our Patreon as well. And I think that's all the WeCrook news for the evening. And now, back to the episode. question I'd love your opinion on is one thing that people talk about in the death positive community a lot is that we can ease some of the toil and misery of you know dying by just planning you know well ahead of time making those wills those last care directives where that say if you do or do not want to be intubated for example um, having some conversations with your key family members just so that you know, when you're actually more limited in pain and dying, you, you can just say, oh, I've already thought about these things and this is what I'm going to do. And I can relax and do the work of dying, not the work of, you know, putting my life in order. And I'm wondering, you know, you've you've done a lot of hospice care visits. You've done the research. Is that does that work or, you know, does it all <laughs> sort of hit the fan, if you will, when you actually receive that fatal diagnosis? <laughs> I I think it um I think both. I think you're just by having conversations ahead of time, you can really help family members feel like okay, we 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 don't feel great about what's going on. It's such a difficult decision to make, but but we can reassure ourselves that this is what the person wanted. And I I think that's endlessly helpful as is trying to teach ourselves some kind of acceptance of our own mortality. But I also think we have a tendency to try to control things and that some 
planning can sort of feed into that. And death and dying are are one of those areas that tend to be impossible to control. And part of accepting our mortality is accepting that idea that you, you don't you only get so much say about how this is going to go. And so I think if you go into it with with a willingness to say it might it might not be at all as I think. And I also the person that I am right now might not be the person I am when I'm close to death. I might have different ideas about about what's most important or what I want. And I think about a a living will that I filled out years ago that had, I don't know, it felt like it was 10 pages long, but it surely it wasn't that long. And it asked all kinds of detailed questions about what I would want as I was close to death. And it, you know, do I want somebody rubbing my hand or not? And I, or, and I thought, I don't know, because maybe when I'm close to death, I'm going to be really focused on that. And I'm not going to want the physical distractions. And so I would also just caution us to beware of that, 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 that of course we will change. And so what we think we want right now might be different from what we want later. Yeah, you had a really interesting section just about how almost universal it is that people prefer to die at home when they're healthy. And so you talked about some families that made, you know, detailed arrangements to honor that last wish. And then in the last days, you know, the dying person decided they wanted to go to the hospital because with their condition and pain level and sort of comfort, it felt like the most comfortable place. Isn't that interesting? I, our, our classic image of how we want to die is in bed at home, surrounded by loved ones. And, and that can be a wonderful way to die, especially with support from hospice where you know a person's pain is well treated and, and a lot of things get taken care of. But for so many people, when you're close to death, Maybe you're quite old, and then so are your family members who are trying to take care of you. And so you're asking somebody in their 80s or 90s to take after the physical demands of trying to get someone to the bathroom or turn them over in bed or administer a crazy number of pills, and they're just not able to do that. And hospitals are set up well to deal with medical needs and physical bodily needs like that. And they're starting to set up better for people who are dying, to set off hospice rooms that are quiet and where they're not trying to do invasive procedures right at the end. And again, I think being aware of that and open to it allows people to say, all right, so I, I always thought that I wanted to die at home, but but now circumstances have changed and that's not the that's not the best thing for me and that's not the best thing for the people that I love. Yeah, there there are definitely some structural issues. And in some of your stories in the book about hospice visits, it's pretty clear that caring for someone who <laughs> is dying is a full-time job. And if you're that a family member of that person, it's an unpaid job. And you tell stories of people who are working full time and somehow 
and caregiving full time and trying to figure out how to you know bridge that gap when they have to be at work and that's that's just a reality right now right and i i think one of the eye opening bits of research that i happened upon was the research about dying trajectories that we tend to or at least i would get caught up in this idea of oh yeah the people will die perhaps as my mother did which was she was relatively healthy until her last few months and she was able to drive herself and cook meals for extended family and friends until three or four weeks before she died and that trajectory that pattern of dying is so common for certain kinds of cancer that the researchers call it the cancer trajectory and then there's another trajectory for the sudden death where you lead a life of health and well-being and then you're suddenly gone but a much more common trajectory now is one where you sort of slowly over time get worse and then get a little better and then get worse and don't reach your your previous health quite as you recover and then you get worse and people sort of bounce in and out of the hospital over years until they finally die of something like a, a common cold. And that kind of death is difficult because, well, for a lot of reasons, but one is that you don't get a chance to really face the fact that you have a, a terminal condition. And so you don't get to say, I don't want to be rushed to the ER this time. I, wa I wanna just die at home. And it's also really difficult for family members who are taking care of you because you become dependent on others for basic physical care for maybe years, as opposed to what happened for my mother was we had three weeks where we had this loving, really difficult, but also really wonderful experience as she was dying. And we could not have kept that up for months or years but for three weeks, it was this joyful duty. Yes, the uh, I believe the trajectory you're you're talking about is called the dwindles, which <laughs> is typical of things like dementia, Alzheimer's, where you have a really really low quality of life, but often for a very long time. Well, I shouldn't say quality of life; I should just say capability of life, where you know b being able to do things like driving yourself, going to the bathroom by yourself might not be there. Um, but you can stay alive for a long time. Right. Or it can be when you have several comorbid conditions, right? If you have COPD, if you have a heart condition and diabetes, and over time, as you age, those build to a point where your your body just can't support it. From, from your research, I know you haven't um, at least written about being through that yourself. Do you have any, any advice for family members looking at someone on that trajectory? I think what's, what people have told me is most helpful. I've had a couple of friends who have read the book and have said it's like a light bulb going off where they can, they can say, oh, this condition is fatal. And just that recognition means that they can sit down with family members and say, you know, maybe we need to talk about assisted living, or maybe we could even look at, at going on hospice 
where you you aren't thinking that you are going to your health's going to suddenly start doing an upward trajectory that you're going to get a lot better or that your family member isn't so i i'm sounding like i have a lot of trust in conversations here but they they can be so helpful in thinking through your expectations and changing those expectations and then thinking about do you really want to end your life in ICU with invasive procedures going on. And if not, you start months or even years ahead of time to say, here's when I don't want to be rushed to ER. Right, right. So the empowering part about knowing about death trajectories is you can have conversations with your medical care providers earlier on get a sense of which death trajectory you're likely on or someone you care about is on and make the right decisions about healthcare and you know what you want then while there's while there's still time because you know if we're looking at a very long slow decline like in the dwindles trajectory you know it's important to have a lot of those last care ideas in place because by the time it's time to make that decision for the final time they may not have the capability to to make their wishes known. Right, right. Yeah, it's it's really interesting interesting stuff, and there's no one size fits all because it does depend. You know, it's um, the right care is, is different for different people. And your book is called "What Does It Feel Like to Die?" And you do have a whole chapter on it. And I know everyone is curious: um, Does it hurt to die? Yes and no. It. Um... It was really interesting to me when I started talking to doctors and researchers about about pain and dying, because many of, of them felt this deep concern about whether people were actually receiving the treatment that's out there. They said that up to, you know, past 90% of the cases that we do have the treatment available to control pain when someone's dying. So maybe not eliminate it, but to make it quite bearable for people. And one of the problems is that the medicine doesn't get administered or doesn't get administered in high enough doses. And that's for all kinds of reasons. And, and of course, one of those is this deep fear we have of opioids, which are usually the most effective pain treatment for people close to death. And that that fear can come from patients who say, I don't, I don't want to get addicted, or it can come from doctors themselves who have these concerns about addiction, or it can also be related to side effects that people say, I don't, I don't want to be blurry in my last, my last few days or weeks, or I don't, I don't want other side effects from the drugs. So the treatment exists, but it isn't always administered to patients. And then I, I think of um, another side of physical discomfort that we don't always we don't always consider. And that's it it isn't just pain that people experience. It can be difficulty in breathing, it can be side effects from medications, it can be a painful cough. There, there are other really uncomfortable symptoms that dying patients sometimes experience. And again, 
doctors reassured me that those can be controlled, but that it's something that that many patients undergo. And then a, a final part of the suffering associated with dying is the the suffering that isn't physical, the the fact that you're losing people that are important to you. You're losing the wonderful parts of your life. You're losing everything. And that kind of emotional suffering often contributes to to physical pain. If especially what the psychiatrist I talked to said was that can be a big part of physical pain for people. So it, it really depends. Um, can I ask you a question? <laughs> uh, what is your thought about opioids? Do I mean, obviously they are very addictive and they're a great problem in our society right now. But if you're in hospice, if you're a dying person, do you have to worry about that or can you just like let go and take the painkillers? They just, doctors say they are not addictive in the same way, at least, if if at all, to someone who's taking them for that kind of pain. And if you're close to death, why would you worry about addiction anyway? It's just, it's a non-issue for dying patients. So, you know, I think the other concerns are real. And I, I talked to a palliative care practitioner who said it's it's kind of a negotiation with patients where you can talk about how much, how important is it to you to be crystal clear mentally and, and how much are you willing to offset some of that at least to get rid of your pain and that you can come to some sort of compromise on that. And so I, you know, I think for myself, my, my immediate thought is I would take whatever opioids anyone made available to me if I were in pain. Yeah, yeah. But there is a dosage thing where they can kind of say, we can get you to moderate pain where you're somewhat clear um, or no pain, but you'll be a little fuzzy. That, that sort of conversation is part of the, the dialogue you might have with your caregiver. Exactly. Yes. So one of the things we talk about in We Croak a lot is it's we all understand we're going to die sort of intellectually, but we don't always talk about it for ourselves, you know, mm -hmm. our own our own mortality. And after writing this book all about what it feels like to die, what what are you most afraid of in terms of looking at the you know certainty of your own death one day? And what are you most looking forward to? I'm speechless. <laughs> I'm I think to me, I would I would hope I would have the chance for that enriching time that my mom had that knowing ahead of time that you have a terminal disease can allow you to say your final goodbyes in a in a way that you don't you don't get if you don't realize for a while that you have a terminal disease and so i think that's one of the things that i look forward to that sort of heightened sense of appreciation and connection with people and I think the the challenges of dying are very real. And I I think it's it's easy when you start talking about death and dying to for it to take on this its own sort of false facade where it seems like this exciting intellectual challenge. And it's so difficult 
and so impossible to control that that we should be careful of that, right? So as we we talk about death and dying, I don't want to put it on some sort of pedestal or or um, make it something to fetishize it. And I think that can that's easy to happen, easy to make happen. And um, and so I I also see the challenges as something that might be deeply frightening to to face losing everything around me to face that physical hardship for however long and maybe that's that's what frightens so many of us about a drawn out death is that the physical and mental hardships aren't just over with they they take a while that, w- that was very moving and brave thank you <laughs> <laughs> for going there with me <laughs> yeah uh so your book, What Does It Feel Like to Die? Uh, Inspiring New Insights into the Experience of Dying is, uh, is out now. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Jenny Deer. Thank you so much, Hansa. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you again, Jenny Deer, for joining us for this episode. If you'd like to read her book, What Does It Feel Like to Die? Check it out in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. And until then, we'll see you next time.